both an art and a science, valuations are complex things and their impact is enormous, making the difference between generational wealth creation and a comfortable retirement. At Bizval, we know how tough it is to grow and run a business, which is exactly why we've made valuations simpler. Whether you are using our online tool Bizval Live or reaching out to us for a concierge offering where we spend more time on your numbers and your business and give you detailed feedback, you can be sure that the same techniques being used by professional investors are also being used by us. And with Bizval Bootcamp, we will prepare you for those discussions with investors. Welcome to this episode of the Bizwell podcast. I'm here with Eitan Stern and I'm really going to enjoy this, I think, because I've actually been a client of his business, which is called Legalese, and they market themselves as a creative legal agency. Creative and legal, two words that you don't see next to each other all the time. You do see creative accountant, but generally uh, in a bad connotation. Uh, creative accountants cause trouble. Uh, <laughs> Eitan, hopefully uh, creative lawyers don't. So welcome to the Biswell podcast. It's good. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. It depends who you mean causing trouble for. Some people some people find us problematic or, or troublesome. Generally uh, traditional lawyers. It's an old it's an old industry which uh, which needed a bit of a spruce up. But no, the creative lawyers don't cause too much trouble for their clients. No, exactly. I, I want to actually start by talking a little bit about the business, sort of what made you start it, what the background was. And I think on a lot of professional services type firms, you know, you've got to kind of go and do your time, generally speaking, before you start these things. And I'm keen to understand that from you. And, and yeah, just a little bit about the strategy, like who are you appealing to? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, you really phrase it perfectly. And uh, obviously, you've got some insights into it. I imagine your, your background is working in in corporate finance of some sort. But yeah, the, the legal industry is built on, on ladders and built on rungs. And, you know, you're supposed to go and climb the ladder. And at some point, what they keep doing is adding more rungs into the ladders. And you used to go being, from being an article clerk to being an associate. Then they added a professional assistant in. They, they kept adding uh, rungs to the ladder. I, I don't think I started legalese to be difficult or to... to I don't think I started to intentionally to try and change things. But, you know, I was kind of... I, I, I was a commercial lawyer working in a commercial firm, was trained by a really excellent commercial lawyer and, you know, just found that skill in life that I was good at and, yeah, I could do this thing. And But I never really fitted into the legal world. I wasn't interested in, in the types of clients working for. I wasn't interested in litigation or helping people fight. Um, I just liked the commercial stuff. And I was also very involved in the music and creative industry. So, you know, like most, uh, I think like a lot of entrepreneurial stories, I, this business started by mistake. Um, I started doing contracts for, for friends who are musicians. Then uh, I was trying to get a job at Spotify at the time. And uh, while I was waiting for them to notice me, I started doing more contracts. And, you know, the job at Spotify didn't work out. But this thing, I had kind of fallen into the right place at the right time. And essentially, it was what legally started with was a was a commercial practice for the music industry, or what they call entertainment law, and was saying like, "Cool, here's this commercial legal skill and this commercial service, which we know is valuable for businesses for structuring and and making sure that your your business avoids issues. What if we offered this to creative businesses?" And at the beginning, people said, "You know, the problem is creative businesses don't have any money, and you, you know, you're dealing with musicians that don't have money." And and in some ways, that's true, but in other ways, that that's really not true the creative industry is massive and you know they are, the music industry is small but but quite quickly we were doing work for like rock in the daisies and freshly ground and some of the bigger players and then quite quickly after that we started just expanding this definition of a creative saying cool instead of it being a a broke uh, artist you know like creative agencies i mean if you tilt your head sideways an architectural practice is a group of creatives that run a really good business so so we kept expanding that definition of creatives and 
over time, um, we turned out that that no one really understood what lawyers were doing and no one really liked the way that legal service was offered. And so today, legalese is a rethink on the legal practice. We've we've taken the things that didn't work well from the billing, the accessibility, the, the look and feel, and we've tried to make it a more human, more friendly, more approachable and affordable service. And yeah, we're 10 years into that mission uh, at the end of this year. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, look, I'm quite a, I suppose, creative myself. I do, I basically write for a living. I mean, obviously my involvement in Bizwell is very much on the valuation side and building the model there. But, you know, at heart, I'm a writer. And that's what I do in, uh, you know, the finance course. So I think that, that positioning of your business appealed to me because, as I said, I've been a client of yours. Um, you guys helped me with uh, trademarking uh, the things that matter to me. So, <laughs> yeah, and that was a good that was a good experience. So I, I completely take the point of like appealing to creatives, you know. And if you actually broaden that, a creative person isn't just someone who draws or plays guitar. It's not true at all. You know, there are a lot of creative people in commerce. Yeah. So today, like our definition of a creative is is really like the most creative people in society, which is often the entrepreneurs and the tech entrepreneurs. These are people that say, I've got a crazy vision. I can see it in my mind, but I want to see that in reality. And so so I think the definition of a, of your typical business person has changed into that the world celebrates creativity in a way which it, which it didn't more maybe never used to. So, I mean, exactly. You're, you're a great example. I mean, you you've managed to to merge your creative skill with an accounting skill and what you guys have built, built at Bizval is you know it falls, falls into a similar world at legalese it's it's trying to say like how did we take uh, an old fashioned idea and something which is valuable for you guys uh, business valuations and make this accessible to people so we fit into a similar world for me business strategy is all about understanding your venn diagram so yours was you know interesting music and then interesting law well, what sits in the middle of that? Okay, contracts for musicians, you know, and then it grows from there. I always say to people, if you're going to start your own business, you better realize that this thing is going to dominate your life. You have to enjoy it. There is absolutely no point in leaving corporate to go and start a business doing something you don't like anyway, because everything about your own business is harder than corporate in the initial years. And then everything about it is better later on, but you've got to survive the initial years. And you're not going to do that if you're not having fun. It just, and I've just become a parent. <laughs> your definition, your, your explanation, it seems to be the exact same as, as what they say about parenting. Tough the beginning, but pays off later. It is exactly exactly what is right about parenting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm three year, three and a half years into that, so I can confirm. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I remember, I remember in the early days, I saw a guy called Ian Calvert. Uh, he used to run Red Bulls. I'm a Pico programmer. I saw him speak, and he and he opened this idea up for me of saying like. You know, I, I saw a talk and it became such a, a, a like a moment that just I remembered and Ian has become a client and I consider him almost a friend of ours or a friend of mine. And like he he said like a creative, he was like everyone in his whole life told him he wasn't creative because he wasn't, he didn't know how to draw or make music. And then suddenly he realized the ideas that he had were super creative. If he could bring those to life, then that was creativity. And then he found his creative passion. So for me, like this idea of saying, for me to, to feel creative in my work has been important. And the entrepreneurial journey, it, it, the, the thing which, I, which I've come to understand about it is that it works in these waves. You go through creative waves where you, where you create, and then you go down into like waves where you have to crest, where you have to then get that stuff working. Like the creativity has to stop and get it working, and then you, you go on a creative quest again. And, and I, I think if there's anything I've been successful with in running a business, it's just understanding that and, and understanding there's time for creativity and time for the hard work but maybe we're segueing into into different topics yeah no but it's good i think the the point you know the point of the bizwell podcast is to kind of give entrepreneurs 
a healthy dose of not just insights, but I think also understanding, you know, people feel very alone on these journeys and they don't realize that the pain they're going through is, is standard practice. It, everything takes longer than you think it's going to. Everything is harder than you think it's going to be, right? You know, and then stuff like, yeah, if you, if you depending on what age you start the business, although you can have kids at practically any age, but, you know, typically a lot of people who are kind of starting it in the middle of their lives, there's young families involved and all the difficulties that come with that and challenges and obviously many joys, but many challenges, you know, so it sounds like you're now on that path as well. Yeah, and uh, totally. And that's something I, I really do tip my hat to people that, that start their business with, with, with kids. Uh, I mean, at this point in my life, I've got a bond, I've got uh, a child, I've got, you know, the, the severe, you know, considerable amount monthly expenses. When I started Legalese, I, I, need, I had 20,000 rand in my bank and I lived with my best friend and I needed 20,000 rand a month to survive. So in that first month, I needed to basically bill 20,000 to survive the next month. And and it sort of worked, but it, and that first year was very fun because my responsibilities were so low. So I, I don't know what, what I would do if I was in a similar position now. I don't know how I would manage that. And I think if there's any point that maybe I want to share on that is that like, I, I think that in life, yeah, I think that when you're young is probably a good time to start a business, right? I think I was, I'm happy that I tried it young at a time where I think I understood that risk. I would, I would, had a bigger risk appetite when I was younger than when I got older. But I don't know. I mean, if the, if, if, the, if, if things change, and I need to start a new business. Would I, if, uh, uh, would I do it again now? I don't know. Time will tell, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Look, I think when you have to start it under difficult financial circumstances, it also forces you to focus, and it forces you to run the business well. You know, you just can't afford mistakes. So I don't think it's the worst thing. You know, the US is very much this culture of raising capital just for an idea, you know, on a whiteboard. We don't have that in South Africa. So we're absolutely forced to say, okay, this thing needs to be profitable fairly quickly. You know, if you're starting it off your own bat, it needs to be profitable straight away. If you do have an investor and you've got a bit of runway, then sure, you know, you might have a year, maybe two years, but definitely we don't have this, you know, use the Spotify example. And Spotify generally makes a profit, but not always. And they, the amount they've burnt on their podcasting efforts is just incredible. So, you know, those big tech firms, they operate in a different world to many small entrepreneurs. It's a very different world. And look, I think the, the idea of raising capital is fantastic. And obviously, some, that's a world you guys are involved in because you you give people the accessibility to do it because you give them the information that they need in order to to raise capital. I, I always kind of fantasized about the idea of starting a business through raising capital, but never enough to to actually have wanted to do it like i think that the the part that i took of of running a business invoice by invoice it, it's slower um and you know your growth is slower because you can't uh, slingshot your growth by, by by burning other people's money but i think it did force me as you say to like learn each lesson individually and when when it's your money that's on the line of a decision or a new uh, a new trajectory like i think you think through these things a lot deeper and so I think there's currently like like the the one thing I have a small issue with this is there's currently this idea that raising capital is a sign of success that if you've done if you've raised capital you've been successful but in raising capital you've convinced one or two people that you that you have a good idea in running a profitable business you've convinced several people that you've had a good idea because those people are paying you for your service so so I, I like businesses that are profitable I like the idea of being a profitable business and. I like the idea of, of sacrificing growth for profitability, but I also might not be the most ambitious entrepreneur on the planet. Sacrificing growth for profitability is a big thing for people to say, and because that's all this hustle culture is all about growth, 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 but that's not real life, you know? I always say to people, go read Shoe Dog, go read how Nike started. 
that was a story of profitability early on because Phil Knight had no choice. You know, he had to keep his job as an accountant so he could get the shoe business going. That was long before you could just walk into an office and go and give up a third of your equity and raise some money. A long time before that. I just had such a, maybe this is a complete segue. So I, I've read the book and I'm currently listening to a podcast about the book and about Nike's story on the way here. And they're talking about um, Bill Bauman inventing the Nike waffles and the waffle iron. And I look down and I'm actually wearing Nike waffles. And so it's such a crazy story about the the, the magnitude of that business. But um, yeah, just you mentioned Nike, so I could not tell that story. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I think let's chat through some legal stuff because I think that's also very useful to entrepreneurs. And obviously with a big focus on creatives and creative businesses, I want to just reiterate, there's not just musos, you know, in protecting intellectual property, as I did with mine, I think is very important in any business. And what triggered me actually making this a priority early on was I was assisting someone who had started a little online store and it was actually going really well. And she really poured her heart and soul into it. And she got this terrible letter like a year in basically saying, sorry, you know, I actually have a trademark for something that you are operating in here. You need to change your name or I'm taking further action. And she did, she had to, she had to go and completely change her name, rebrand all her pages, rebrand her websites, you know, and obviously when you're building a consumer brand, look, I think it feels much worse to you in the beginning than it is long term, especially when you've only been going for a year, but it's still not where you want to be, you know, and, and I realized that and I kind of protected, you know, the finance goes concept very early in the process. So from your perspective, what is the importance of protecting your intellectual property as early in the journey as possible and what does that actually look like what are those protections yeah it's a great question great place to start so i think it, i'm going to start one step back which is which is probably something which which will already connect with you guys at bizval is that the first step in protecting intellectual property is actually understanding what is valuable to you right because that's going to be different for every business so for yourself as a finance ghost you you are you're protecting your brand you're saying that cool i want people to hear the finance ghost to in their minds connect that to to something smart and something interesting and therefore whatever i put that that name on is going to have that that connection so so for you the first step it wasn't that you were protecting a website or protecting a body of clients or something that was the thing that that took protecting and that's going to differ for every business same eh? if you if you look at you know even the a big business like some like like facebook right like their value is not in the app that they've built but in the the the, the, the signups and the data that they hold so every business is going to have something different that they want to protect. Using the Nike example, uh, just because we've mentioned it, their their value is not the shoes. They, when they release a, a pair of shoes, you're going to find the ne- the next year something similar in Adidas in two years' time and pick and pay. And but what they do fiercely is protect that name because that is actually what's valuable. So first step in protecting your IP is really understanding uh, what is valuable and inter- interacting with that in your business. And it's going to be different. And then I totally think like every business, you, you know, you need to, it needs to be part of your strategy, just like you have a revenue strategy or profit strategy, like protecting your IP is a, 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 an important strategy. And then there's different options available for you. What you're talking about is trademarking, but only the name or the logo. And yeah, I always suggest to, to like with, with, with trademarking, you can do it too late as the example that you've given, or you can do it too early as well. A lot of businesses, some people, you know, when you're starting a business, you've got a limited amount of capital and you need to spend it wisely. People People would say, cool, I like this business and I like the name. But the truth is, it, it's almost like putting a very big security fence on a house with no valuables in it, 
right? You need to make sure that there's some value to what you're doing before you protect it. Or listen, if you've got endless capital, then, you know, and you're very committed to the name, then for sure, put the security fence up. But what I always suggest to people is make sure that this business is going to work and that is the name before you protect it. And there's a lot of free things that you can do as a starting point. If you're starting a business, you don't have money to trademark it. First, go do the Google search, go to Instagram, go to Twitter or X, Facebook, and see like, are there other companies with that same name and are they around in, in, in your country? And if they are, like choose a different name. But if you can go onto Instagram and Pinterest and all the rest and get you know, the finance ghost or, or legalese, whatever it is. And that's a very good step to understanding, cool, this this name is probably not. You can also run a trademark search, relatively inexpensive. And yeah, and so so if you commit it to your brand and want it, then, you know, putting a, a guard around that and, and trademarking it is a great idea. But that's brand aside. I mean, they, it, depending on, on what your, if your IP, your intellectual property, the thing of value sits in other aspects of your business, you need other strategies. So if it's a concept that you have, like a real secret source, and you don't want other people to know it, then you need to make sure that anyone you're sharing that idea with is in a contract to not steal it or to not use it. That's NDAs or or in your employment contracts, there's confidentiality provisions. If your IP is your client list, then you need to fiercely guard that and make sure no one sees that that doesn't need to. So, you know, it's not sitting on a server that, that can be shared by mistake. So, so just getting to grips with what is your IP and figuring out a legal strategy around that is, is in my mind, a, a core thing in starting a new business. Yeah, that's a really great intro. And obviously, we've done a similar route here with protecting the Bizval name, which matters a lot to us. And you've touched on something interesting, which is the regional protection. And I think that's an important point. I'll give you a very real example. So I was researching Kroger uh, this week, which is basically the biggest grocery retailer in the U.S., now, they have a private label brand called Simple Truth, and it has a green logo and it has a little leaf on it. Now, if you've ever shopped at Checkers, you might have recognized a little private label brand called Simple Truth, which also has a green logo. It also has a leaf, although done differently. But in all respects, it's very hard to believe, you know, and, and maybe it's coincidence, but I think it's a little bit more likely that perhaps the local Simple Truth name was perhaps inspired uh, by Kroger. And presumably Kroger, I mean, they don't operate in South Africa. They clearly have no ambitions to, or, you know, it seems that way. So they're not protected here. So a brand here can go and be inspired by that name and open it up and, you know, away they they go. And people are also commenting, interestingly enough, on how similar that uh, ShopRite Checkers clothing brand, Unique, is to Uniqlo, the international brand. So I guess the point here is regional protection right you can't just trademark something in south africa and then get very upset when someone takes that name and starts using it in the uk you would need to protect yourself in various regions and obviously the cost goes up and up to do that exactly so look as a starting point when it comes to intellectual property you're very rarely going to find a gray area or more different interpretations because essentially art which is you know creativity words pictures and law which is rigid lines are not meant to be good friends. And so when you're trying to create laws around things like design and concept and idea and uh, music and, you know, uh, stories, like what you're doing is you, you're entering into a, into a gray area. So that's as a starting, po- starting point. But when it comes to registering trademarks, every country is going to have their own 
trademark system and these form part of big global conventions right so all the countries uh, you know or most modern western countries are going to be part of the same trademark conventions but they've got their own trademarks office which manages their trademarks in their country and they fits part of these bigger global conventions some parts in the world like europe have a have a one trademark office that governs most of Europe and Africa has, has a similar one but it doesn't affect it doesn't actually operate as well but in theory when you're registering a trademark what you what you need to do is you need to protect it per country so if you own the finance ghost in South Africa it doesn't mean that someone in America can't start a company called the finance ghost it also means if you own the finance ghost in South Africa as in the financial advisory category, because trademarks are registered in different categories. If you own it in category, let's say, 23, it doesn't mean if I want to start a shoe brand or a car manufacturer called the Finance Ghost that I can't do that. So, so because the idea behind trademarks is not to essentially stop other people from from utilizing creative ideas or to, or to grow their brands, it's to protect the value that you have. So there wouldn't be a rational idea in saying, well, you know, if you if you're trying to protect finance ghost as a financial advisor, what harm would it do for me to start a car brand in that name? So so not only are there different countries and jurisdictions, there's different uh, categories and it does get very expensive. So companies that say, well, listen, I want to register in our plan next year to launch in America and three years time in Australia, you can't just go and register the, all those brands in countries like america you need to actually operate and be operational within i think six months of registration in order to keep your to keep your your protection and it, you're right it becomes very expensive so just like you know any brand that's starting needs to uh be open and, and real with themselves around where they're trying to launch and then protect in those countries and use that as part of the strategy the one thing i want to add to this is saying that with all of that aside, and this is one of these gray areas that I was talking about, there is this thing which we call like spillover protection. So, you know, in the early internet days, there were people that thought they were smart by by going and, you know, Microsoft was suddenly a big company and they would go and they would register the, the, the trademark of Microsoft in South Africa or register the domain of Microsoft. Now, if you are, it comes down to that basic idea. If you're starting something only to take advantage of someone else's work so you're trying to do it for, to, to take advantage of uncompetitive behavior then the law is never going to be on your side with that so those companies that registered microsoft and south africa around the world were forced to give their trademarks back to microsoft because it was clear that the only reason that they were registering those brands was to try to take advantage of the hard work that microsoft had done but you couldn't start a car manufacturer in south africa called google theoretically because we all understand what that name and uh, and trademark is about so in theory, I mean, in simple terms, yes, it's per jurisdiction, but when your brand is big enough and has a big enough protection globally, you're going to have protection around the world around that brand. Yeah, it's fascinating. I remember when I registered mine, so one of the issues was, I think it was Orlando Pirates. Their followers are, are collectively called the Ghost, apparently. I learned this when it went through uh, the trademarks office. And uh, Orlando Pirates has registered a whole bunch of trademarks around this Ghost concept across all sorts of things, you know, so if they want to ever go and sell funeral policies, which Ghost is maybe a, a reasonably funny name, you know, they would then go and do that. And there was a concern around, you know, am I doing financial products or not, which I'm not. So yeah, just very, very interesting. It's quite an interesting thing to go through, to go and actually register a trademark. And I want to, you know, before the whole podcast is just about trademarks, I do want to touch on 
just some of the other legal needs. You've already done that. You sort of talked about, uh, you know, employee contracts to protect client lists and IP and all of that stuff is very, very important. Absolutely. I mean, whenever someone starts a business, there's probably like a suite of documents they kind of need to just think about. You know, you just got to have your legals covered. And obviously, as a business grows, those needs evolve. You know, as you get employees, then you need to think about that. If you have other shareholders, you need to think about a shareholders agreement and all that kind of thing. Generally speaking, what is your approach with new businesses? Do you kind of sell them a package of docs, like here's the suite, it's done? Or is it, you know, let's do it one by one as your needs come through? What is your approach? Yeah, so so our approach, well, what's our, our approach and what our client's approach is, is it, it differs. And, you know, being a client-led led practice, we follow what our clients need. But, you know, if you look on our website, we have these packages of saying, like, cool, here's your startup package, here's your tech company package, whatever it is. But that's not, in my experience, how people approach their, their legalities. And so we've had to, over the years, um, you know, be very maneuverable about what we offer each client. Because in, in my experience, every single client has been has had a different needs. And it's very, very rare that someone comes with a exact out of the box, please give me these five things. That's just maybe a, a general point. But what contracts, what, what does a business need to do when, they, when they're starting up? So it's funny, we were actually, I think we, we probably are going to put out an article about this soon. We were talking about it last week. Essentially, the legalities of a business is a question of managing relationships with your business. So if you think about yourself in the center of a piece of paper and write your business's name in the center of a piece of paper, you need to then think about all the different companies or people that interact with your business. And you need to look at each one of those relationships. And if you can safely say, this relationship is managed, I understand what's going on with this, it's all clear and on paper, we can consider that a legal tick. And I split these into four categories. It's your internal relationships, your external, your public relationships, and essentially your relationship with things, your IP. Your internal relationships are going to be the people inside your business, your staff, your investors, your shareholders, your partners, the people that work inside. And so, yeah, it's like if you've got a partner, do you have a shareholders agreement? If you've got staff, are they signed up to real contracts? Uh, is your is your IP protected with your staff, etc.? Then we look at the external relationships. These are the people outside your business, your clients, your service providers, your partners, your JVs, anyone that, that your business interact with. And then the same question, are your terms with your clients clear? Are your service providers, is it clear who, what your relationship with them is? Then we look at the public, that's the state, that's you know understanding where you fit in terms of the law, your company registration, SARS. And then the last category is your things, the IP, the intellectual property that you use. Do you own it? If someone else's company, I mean, we saw around COVID, you had tech companies shut down and suddenly entire arms of your business could no longer operate. Is your company reliant on other people's IP? Do you own your IP? So I like to think about that question of a startup by looking around that map and helping a startup draw their map and understand where the relationships of the business and what needs to be managed. It sounds complex, but once you actually put it on paper, you'll be blown away how simple it is. Um, we've got a process that we run for clients called a, a legal gap analysis, where we kind of run them through all the different aspects and we're able to highlight these these things. But in some, in many ways, it's something. If you're starting a business small, it's something that you can do yourself. If you're starting a business big, you know, and you're financed, I think it's a really important thing to do because it helps highlight what are those gaps that you need to fill and then you can create urgency and priorities around that so i think it's a good process to go through absolutely i think there's so many insights in there and you know conscious of time the last thing i actually want to ask you is 
Any examples that spring to mind, obviously without giving details, where clients have just had a really crummy outcome because they maybe didn't think of the legal risks in advance? I'm sure in the intellectual property space, there must be a heartbreaking story or two on this. Yeah, I th- I'd look, I think that there's heartbreaking stories on, on daily around this sort of thing. So clients, you know, the story that you told earlier around someone losing, their, like needing to change their brand down the line, so avoidable and so heartbreaking. Stories about, I mean, I've seen more companies than I'd like to have seen who've business has fallen apart for one reason, one reason only, because the founders landed up fighting, you know, or that you had a dispute with an investor. Like, that's really hard stuff, and it's super avoidable. I, people say don't do business with friends. I say don't do business with friends without a contract. So I wouldn't, wouldn't want to be in business with someone that wasn't a friend. But you need to have clear agreements with people. Um, same thing around staff, you know, like you've got someone working for you, and they they take your intellectual property or they, they take your ideas and go start their own business. We see these things happen and they're really tough to deal with. So these are, you know, the, these are the sorts of things like thinking through the little aspect, the little relationships that your business has from the start is something which is going to give you a lot more longevity. You know, our approach to law has off, has always been around trying to ha- not help people fight about things and so not to litigate over them. I think litigation going to court is not a, a, a practical solution for a small business. None of us can afford it. None of us can afford the time. But it's about being constructive. So we're always trying to say, like, what do we have to do to avoid this being a stuff up in the long run? And that's always been our approach to law. Yeah, but so definitely some heartbreaking stories along the way, some really sad ones, um, but also a lot of really happy ones. People seeing people uh, making good decisions and creating strong relationships and that being the thing which catapults their business to the next level. Yeah, unfortunately, getting it down on paper is the most important thing in the world. If you doesn't matter which friends you go into business with or whatever, if you know anyone who's ever had to navigate their way through a divorce or a difficult business breakup or something like that, you know, those legals are all you've got in those situations and it's not fun. That's actually work which we've done a fair bit of, which is it's really interesting, really hard work, but we call them business divorces. So it's splitting apart partnerships and sometimes those are business partners who are also married. And so really you start to see this entanglement of, of emotion in business and contract. Um, it's really interesting stuff. The the number one tip that I can give as a lawyer, well, two tips that I can give as a lawyer to anyone, I think, which, uh, which, which stand out of my career. Number one is, never sign sureties uh, you know if you don't have to really avoid signing sureties and number two is is just put it down on paper the amount of disputes the amount of issues we could have been resolved by saying put it on paper paper is not an email paper is not a whatsapp paper is not a voice note if you're doing a deal with someone take five minutes write those terms onto a piece of paper in point form you're going to do this i'm going to do this this is when it's going to be delivered this is how much we'll pay this is who owns it you are saving yourself that the 10 minutes you can afford it and that it's going to save yourself a world of trouble down the line. Yeah, super, super practical advice, which I think is what you guys do. So Eitan, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, this has been, I think, really interesting and really fun. And to those who want to you know, find out more, I mean, they can go to the Legalese uh, website. So that's legalese.co.za, legalese.co.za. And uh, are you active on LinkedIn or socials? Where can people engage with you? Yeah, really active on LinkedIn, really loving LinkedIn. So you can definitely connect me on LinkedIn, on uh, the Instagram if you want to see what our lawyers get up to. Legalese, like Japanese, on uh, on the website. And yeah, we're not hard to get hold of. Keen to chat, we're, we're here. Fantastic. Eitan, thank you so much and all the best. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.